you'd like to follow along with the sermon this morning, there's an outline provided in the bulletin for you as we continue our series on Paul's letter to Titus. Well, a few weeks ago, before the birth of our most recent child, uh, I was having a meeting in my office with a member of the church, and I had my windows open. It was a nice day. And my children were playing outside with their mother, of course. And, you know, in the midst of our meeting, we heard screaming, like loud screaming. And the person I was meeting with looked at me and said, like, do you need to check out what's going on? And I said, no. That's the I didn't get my way scream. That is not the I'm hurt scream. As parents of children, we learn to interpret what the message is that we are getting. Is this a legitimate cry in pain and fear? Or is this a cry that, you know, you go, just go ahead and cry. It's similar to Chicken Little or the boy who cried wolf. You hear this again and again and you know not to trust that that one's the fake one. But that one over there, yep, that's the real cry. That is the faithful voice, the one that is telling us the truth that something is happening. And that's what we look for in our world today. We look for people around us who we can trust what they're saying. People who don't say one thing to us and another thing behind our backs. People who are in the public I and say the same thing in front of us to one group and the same thing to another group. That we want people who are consistent, people with integrity, people who are on message that we can trust. Paul understands this as he's writing to Titus, one of his protégés, his people he is mentoring. He knows we need men of integrity in the Christian church. We need people who are trustworthy with this great message that we have been given in Jesus Christ. And so this morning in our passage in Titus, Paul describes the kind of people to look for to help be leaders in the church. The people who when they cry, you know they're crying for real. For real. People when they speak, you know they are speaking the truth. So if you would, open your Bibles with me to Titus chapter 1. You can find the book of Titus after 1st and 2nd Timothy and before the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. That's Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. We looked at the introduction last week and we begin kind of the meat or the body of Paul's letter to Titus here. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. It's a little different from the NIV, but the English Standard Version. Verses 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let us pray. Lord God, we give thanks for your word. 
for the truth of your word, for the sound doctrine found within, and may we be people who trust your word. See it as true and hold fast to it, O God. May we not be led astray by those things that contradict it, but help us to know your word. Use me, Lord, in spite of my sin, in spite of myself, that the word would go forth today, that it would enter not just our ears but our hearts and minds to change and transform us, to know your love, and to be compelled and empowered to serve you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today, as we're looking at the office of elder, the big idea is really the church needs faithful, self-controlled elders to be stewards of God's house. Faithful, self-controlled elders to be stewards of God's house. And so in our passage, we're going to first consider the need for elders before looking at three tests of fitness for an elder. Now, these are not the bench press, the mile run, and things like that. They are different tests of fitness that we will see. So first, the need for elders. After his customary greeting to Titus, Paul begins by reminding Titus, here is your most important task on the island of Crete, to appoint elders in every town. That Paul had been with Titus as they traveled the whole island of Crete in the Mediterranean, and they'd gone to all different towns and proclaimed the gospel, the good news of Jesus. But though they had shared that message, the work was not complete. The stable structure, the the oversight of the family of the church had not been put in place. People had heard it, but they were left with a, well, what now? What do we do now that Paul has left and Titus can't be here? Paul reminded him that each local congregation needed elders to lead them. And that's how Titus will put into place what remained unfinished. That local leadership would be vital to the, import, to the good order of the church on Crete. And we can discern a couple reasons why from our passage. First, having a group of leaders prevents a church from overburdening one leader. That's obvious from the phrase, in every town. That if there are all these towns on the island of Crete and only one Titus, he is going to get stretched really thin if he is supposed to lead every single one of those churches. He can't be everywhere at once. And so local leaders would help lead the individual congregations in all those churches. We saw this in our Old Testament reading from Exodus 18, that Moses had hundreds of thousands, if not a million Israelites in the wilderness, and he was the only one they went to. He sat all day from dawn until dusk with Yes, he took your toy. You're in timeout. Yes, like all day, every day, with every little dispute, it was all on Moses. Finally, a wise father-in-law. You, you know this is my father-in-law's favorite verse, right? The, and he did everything his father-in-law said. He likes that one. Moses listened. He realized, I can't do this on my own. He was overburdened, stretched thin. It would lead to their doom, and he got help. He got help from people who were worthy of helping him. Well, similarly, pastors and church leaders can try to do too much, stretching themselves too thin. They try to lead every ministry, visit every person, meet every need, but elders help prevent the burnout that can come to pastors and other church leaders. They're helpful within the church. So that's one reason they prevent burnout. 
But secondly, they prevent pride and the danger of one person having a sense of ownership over a group. You see, Titus was on an island. You couldn't just jet set to the island. You'd have to cross it on a boat. And so Titus could really just become the Pope of Crete, the grand poobah of all things Christian on the island. He could have made himself the king of Christianity there. But that would not have been good. That would have been pride. It would have been a wrong sense of ownership over the ministry that was not right for Titus. And so elders provide a necessary check and balance against the pride and ownership that can come about in church leaders. So in Protestant churches like ours, we do not recognize the authority of the Pope or any other Pope-like figures. We think giving one person that much authority is a bad thing. I think history speaks to that just a little bit. In fact, our denomination, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, had our General Assembly meeting this past week, and they invite not just pastors, but elders from every church to gather together for the business of the church nationwide and globally, and they do it in a beautiful way. They want two elders for every pastor, realizing that the churches belong to the people and not the pastors. See, Presbyterian churches work with elders because we see not only is it in Scripture, but it is wise to have a group of leaders and not singular leaders that can fall into pride and ownership. So if that's how elders are needed to help, then why are they called elders? Do we have to be old? And if so, how old do we have to be? Well, Paul uses three words to describe this office of leadership in the church. In verse 5, he calls them elders. But later in verse 7, he writes this. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Now, the NIV translates steward into keeper of God's house or something of that nature. But the idea is stewardship there. And so those three terms, elder, overseer, and steward, refer to the same office. It's similar to how people call me different things sometimes. Some people will come up and say, well, hi, pastor. And others will say, hello, reverend. That's weird. And others will call me preacher. That's weird as well. But really, they are the same, referring to the same thing. Pastor, like elder, is more of a title. And preacher, like overseer or steward, is more of the function of the job. And so in the same way, they refer to the same thing, that An elder must be an overseer, a good steward of God's church. So if that's what they're to be, then a person's fitness for that office, whether or not they should be an elder, depends on their ability to faithfully steward and oversee God's church. So in order to be an elder, you must be a good overseer and steward. And in verses 6 through 9, Paul gives three tests of fitness. Again, not physical fitness, but spiritual fitness. And they are the family, the self, and the truth. Are we good stewards of family, ourself, and the truth? So the first test of fitness is being a good steward of family. Paul writes in verse 6, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, 
and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So being a faithful steward of your family is a crucial test for being an elder. That makes sense in light of the parable of the talents, which you might be familiar with from our mission project earlier in 2016. In that parable, Jesus says this, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. That people who have shown the ability to be faithful in small things are then entrusted with greater responsibility. So a person who has faithfully stewarded their family is worthy of consideration to faithfully steward and oversee God's family, the church. And Paul describes what this looks like, being a faithful steward of your family, in two ways. First, he says an elder must be a husband of one wife. So what is described here is a faithfulness to one's spouse and God's sexual ethics. That if a candidate for elder is married, he must be in line with God's desire for marriage. Now, we have to be careful to not take this the wrong way. Paul's using words from, you know, 2,000 years ago. So he's likely phrasing this because most of the men in that time period were married. The idea of a single man was not as common for Paul in this sense, and so It does not mean that single people are somehow disqualified from being elders. Rather, it's the concept of being faithful in the primary relationship of family. So if that relationship does not exist, if a person is not married, then are they still faithful to God's desires for them? Are they still faithful to God's standards of holiness? Do they care about those things? Now, a quick note is necessary about whether or not this disqualifies women for the office of elder. Well, in Sunday school in the spring, we went through a long list of these, and there are other places in the New Testament that speak to this issue more directly, and we don't have time to cover that today because it's already about 80 degrees in here, and it's only going to get hotter, and I don't want to be sweating all over everything up here. But... The New Testament speaks to it, and one of the great things about our denomination, the EPC, is it says Scripture seems a little clear on this and a little unclear on this. Should men only be elders or should women also be allowed to be elders? And the EPC says each local church can use their wisdom and understanding of Scripture for themselves. And so we here at Bethel do allow women to serve in the office of elder. Other churches that are Bible-believing, God-honoring churches do not. The EPC allows the freedom to interpret this in different ways, knowing how things have changed. So here we do allow women to be elders. And so in that case, it would be a wife of one husband, interpreting it in that way as well. But the idea there is not so much that you have to be married, but that you are faithful in the primary family relationship if it exists between husband and wife. So that's the first thing they look for. The second descriptor of someone who's a good steward of family is this. His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So the idea behind this description is that a potential elder must manage their household well, especially the children under his or her care. If that person is found lacking in discipline and oversight over their children, 
then are they the right person to exercise discipline and oversight over God's family, over his children in the church? Now, this passage raises other questions. Probably the biggest question is, is it fair for parents to be held accountable for the faith and salvation of their children? Do we have control over whether or not our children believe in Jesus Christ? And I think the answer there is obvious. We do not have control over that. You can try as much as you want, but to force someone to be saved doesn't happen. We cannot force them in that. But we are responsible for their discipline and behavior when they're under our care. And that expectation is more in line with 1 Timothy, where Paul writes again about the qualifications for elders. There he writes this. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Note how that concern is on the discipline of children and not the salvation of their souls. And so Paul's concern is not whether or not we somehow have the amazing ability to make our child a Christian. I don't know any parents who have that magic ability. Jesus saves. Mom doesn't save. Unless you're going across the street and she grabs your hand. Then she saves you. But not in salvation sense. And so it's asking that kind of question, you know, what are you able to do? Are you able to manage the discipline, the oversight, the behavior well? Are you able to maintain a level of respect and obedience? Again, I understand I'm saying that to parents in the pews with children who are this. I, I unfortunately, not unfortunately, don't have a child up here with me. And so I feel bad, you know. It's, it's hard to get kids to obey, but the expectation is not that elders, children, are perfect little angels sitting in a row in the pew with their hands folded, intently listening to the pastor and just soaking it all in and becoming super Christians. That's not what elders' children are necessarily supposed to be. The bigger issue is how do the parents respond when their children misbehave? How do they respond when their children go astray? How do they respond when there is disrespect? When, not if, but when children disobey and misbehave, how does that parent exercise discipline and authority? Is it done in a loving way consistent with Scripture? See, many elders can have children who have had hard times, who have gone astray, who maybe even have sinned greatly later in life, but did those elders faithfully respond in the moment to their child's misbehavior, their disobedience, their acting out? Did they respond as faithfully as they could in that situation? Did they continue to show grace while holding to the truth of God's standards? Those are the things that are under our control. Those are the things that show someone being a good steward. See, those practices and attitudes reflect someone who is a good steward over their family. And just as an elder must manage his or her own household well, they have to manage themselves well. And so the second test of fitness is, are you a good steward of yourself, namely your character? 
Paul lists five vices or negative examples in this passage, and then he lists six virtues or positive characteristic traits, showing this is what elders are not to be like, and this is what elders are to be like. And all of these vices and virtues, they boil down to one issue, control, self-control. Self-control is another way of saying, are you a good steward of yourself? We must be in control, good stewards of our thoughts, attitudes, and actions. So Paul describes the vices like like this. He says, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. That all of those are expressions of a person without self-control, without godly character. That arrogance is an expression of pride and superiority. The self is not controlled because it has grown disproportionately large outside of the bounds where it belongs. Being quick-tempered is by definition someone who loses control quickly at the smallest slight or a minor difficulty in life. The other three vices are uncontrolled desires for something else. That being a drunkard is an uncontrolled desire for drink, for pleasure, for escapism. Being violent is an uncontrolled desire for vengeance, unwilling to allow the proper course of justice to take place, wanting to take things in our own hands. Being greedy for gain is an uncontrolled desire for money, for status, for power. It's the opposite of contentment. That all those vices show that an elder must be a person who is a good steward of himself, someone who is self-controlled. See, our desires want to rule over us. Satan deceives us. We have twisted desires that lead us astray from God's word. We are tempted into selfish things, into pleasures instead of holiness. And yet Paul writes to Titus that elders need to live self-controlled lives. And he describes them in this way with six positive virtues. He must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. See, those those are characters of self-control, but really the self-control is word control. Do we control ourselves by the word, by scripture, by the commands of God? You see, controlling ourselves by the word leads to a life of integrity in those words above reproach. The NIV translates those words blameless, but blameless does not mean perfect. It means a life of integrity. You see, too often these lists of vices and virtues can become checklists for us, that we go down that list and we either feel great pride, it's like, man, I don't do any of that stuff and I do all of that stuff. Pride is not good in that sense. Or we look at that list and we feel completely and totally depressed, like, I am unworthy of any of this. If it is a checklist, it crushes us. But since we are all sinners, elders and leaders included, we look at this list as a guide for our repentance. As here is what God wants in any way in which I am living outside of it, I fall on my knees again in repentance. Lead me away from these vices and into these virtues, God. Show me how to be stronger, not for my own pride, for my own reputation, but for your glory and service of others. 
See, being above reproach, being blameless, is not about being perfect. It's about an unaccusable integrity. It's about years of living for God, and when we sin, turning immediately to repentance and asking God for forgiveness. This integrity is hugely important for leaders in the church because, as most of us know, one of the biggest reasons for people turning away from Christianity is leaders in the church. Leaders in the church who have hurt them, who have not shown integrity according to the scriptures. See, a lack of integrity will turn people away. And those people who are not turned away and stick around they develop mistrust for leaders. They develop a mistrust for those people who have shown their integrity is lacking. And so elders are called to be good stewards of themselves by living with integrity and self-control. Not only to glorify God, but to make our ministry possible in the church and in the community. Because our ministry is possible when the message matches the man. Or the message matches the woman. That's one of the main purposes of living above reproach is that so people will listen to and respect the message that God has given to us. And so that second test of fitness is are we stewards of ourself? And we need to be stewards of ourselves because of the third test of fitness that we are stewards of the truth. Paul writes in verse 9, that an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So a prospective elder must hold to the truth, not whatever truth we want, but the truth revealed in Scripture. The truth is the sound doctrine of the Christian faith found in Scripture. So holding to this truth is of vital importance for our leaders in light of the two primary tasks that Paul gives at the end of verse 9. He says, first, an elder must be able to give give instruction in sound doctrine. So not only do elders have to know the truth, they have to be able to share the truth with others. That's crucial because with the children up here, one of our most important tasks in the church is to teach others. The faith is always passed on from generation to generation to people of all ages to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, that we are all sinners in need of salvation, and Jesus graciously provides it through his life, death, and resurrection. Now, this doesn't mean that elders have to have all the answers, that you're going to be quizzed to know. Now, in Revelation 7.12, when it says that there's a fiery beast, what does that mean? No, that doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that you have to memorize the list of the kings of Israel and Judah. Please don't do that. Okay, That's not what they're asking. It's not asking to know everything. It's not even asking elders to be able to stand up and teach in front of hundreds or thousands of people. What it is asking is that elders be good stewards of the truth. To know it and to be able to share it with others, even if it's one-to-one, even if it is adult-to-child. Can you share the truth with others? But the second task is that elders must be able to contradict those, uh, to rebuke people who contradict the truth. So not only do elders have to know the truth, you have to recognize when something is not the truth. 
See, Paul wrote in verse 1 of Titus that knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. So that begs the question, what does a wrong knowledge lead to? If knowledge of the truth leads to godliness, what does false knowledge lead to? Well, it certainly doesn't lead to godliness. And so it's important for elders to rebuke people who contradict the truth. But what people? Are we to go find people in town who we don't know and ask them, hey, do you believe in Jesus? No. Rebuke! No, that's not not exactly what elders are called to do, but they're called to rebuke those within the church. See, Paul reminds Titus later in chapter 1 that there are those in the church who will be deceived by false teaching. There are those who will be tempted to go astray, and they need to be lovingly corrected and rebuked, like a parent would correct and discipline children. And so elders must be able to correct those within the church, and that, that's about the hardest thing in the world, is to correct someone when they're out of line. You see, correcting people is a very sensitive matter, And that's why it's paramount that elders be people of integrity. People who you want to listen to because they have godly character. You see, it's far easier to receive criticism and correction from someone you know is trying with all their might and God's strength to live the truth. It's way easier to listen to that person than the person who is not living the truth. That stewardship of self flows right into the stewardship of the truth that our message is heard when they see that we have been faithful stewards of our lives. But the big problem is that all of us, elders and leaders or otherwise, are sinners. Elders, pastors, deacons, all of us are naturally poor stewards. We tend towards selfish behaviors and desires. We're easily deceived by the lies of the devil. And when we reflect on our own sinfulness and ask, would I be a good steward? The answer is usually no. That we know better than anyone else just how sinful we are. Just how many ways we have messed up. Just how many ways we have been poor stewards. And yet, in God's infinite wisdom, he has chosen to entrust his house, the church, to sinners like us. Even though generations of people throughout history have been turned off by sinful human leaders, God continues to call sinful human leaders to be stewards of his church. And our only hope in that case is Christ. See, Jesus is the one who makes it possible to to be faithful stewards. Jesus could have very easily risen from the dead. He could have saved the world. And then he could have stayed. And said, I'm in charge, church. Come to me. See, unlike Moses, Jesus would not have gotten tired. Maybe a tiny bit frustrated, but not tired. He could have handled it all. He could have handled all the kids' little arguments. And good for him, because I can't. But he could have handled everything. And yet Jesus left. I think one of the most amazing experiences reading the Bible is that moment If you could just ask the disciples what they were thinking as Jesus ascended into heaven and just picked their brains, and they just would have been like, oh, man, it's on us now. 
We are the leaders. And yes, Christ has empowered them to lead, but that can be a frightening thing. That just like Paul left Titus on Crete and said, finish what we started. Jesus left the disciples on earth, left all of us on earth and said, finish what I started. And Jesus knows our weakness. Jesus knows our sins. He knows we have selfish desires. And yet it is God's plan to call men and women to participate in the ministry of the gospel. And one of those ways is through leadership in the church as elders. And so our sense of weakness and our amazement that he would use us combines to give us that humble authority that Paul talked about at the very beginning of his letter. That he is both a servant and an apostle, a saved sinner and an empowered leader. And so for us today, some of us are elders, some of us are not. For our elders in the church, pray for God's guidance and strength as you seek to fulfill your calling as God's stewards in his house. Remember that you have been entrusted to care for his people, to care for the truth. Hold to the truth. Teach the truth. Rebuke those who contradict it in love. And remember the most foundational truth, that though you have authority, you are also a sinner. That Christ came to save sinners, sinners like you. And so proclaim the good news with the authority of Scripture, knowing that many sinners need to be saved just like us. For all of us in the church, whether or not we are elders, we should pray for our elders. We need to pray that God would use them in spite of their sin to keep them from temptation so that they would faithfully steward God's house. We need to pray for their families, for their character, for their knowledge of the truth. And we need to trust them. We need to trust them because the time may come when we need to be corrected. The time may come when we are walking out of line and we need someone to help us. And God has given them to us in love to care for all of us. He has given us leaders so that we can follow someone in serving the Lord. So thanks be to the God who can make selfish sinners like us into faithful stewards of his house by the grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we give thanks that you have, you have blessed us in mighty ways. It's hard to believe it's been nearly 2,000 years since Jesus walked on the earth in the flesh. And somehow the church still exists. Somehow we haven't ruined it so completely through bad leadership and our sins throughout the ages that it's still here. It is a testament to your faithfulness and not to our capability. Because you, O oh God, take us the incapable, take us the sinners, and make it possible for us to serve you. Lord, I pray that you would bless the elders in our church and the elders in churches around the world. Strengthen them with a knowledge of the truth and a love for you. May they be humble, knowing their own sins. And may may they fulfill their calling as stewards of your house. May we listen to them, love them, and pray for them. And Lord, for generations to come, raise up new leaders, 
new generations of leaders who may feel weak now, but you are preparing them to lead. They may be young, they may be infants right now, Lord, but raise them up to be leaders, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.